0: the man Ezekiel as opposed to the content of his prophecies because as you can imagine with 48 chapters there's quite a bit of information in this book and we simply don't have the time to go into all of the content of those prophecies. Our key verses on the screen will give us a great overview of the commission of this prophet and one of the things that makes him so unique. On the screen we have from Ezekiel chapter 12 verses 10 and 11, Say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, This burden concerneth the prince in Jerusalem, and all the house of Israel that are among them. Say, I am your sign. Like as I have done, so shall it be done unto them. They shall remove and go into captivity. Ezekiel was a Jewish prophet, and as these verses say, he's a man of sign, and we'll explore that concept in a few moments. He was from the kingdom of Judah, and not only was he a prophet, but he was also a priest. He was contemporary with the prophet Jeremiah, who we looked at a few weeks ago, and also contemporary with the prophet, or rather with Daniel. Now on the screen, you can see highlighted on the chart, the timeline of Ezekiel's ministry. As mentioned, he was contemporary with Jeremiah, and that means that he's a prophet who lives in the very last days of the kingdom of Judah. Now he was born during the reign of righteous King Josiah, but he prophesies specifically in the reign of the very last king of Judah named Zedekiah. And he happens to prophesy when Jehoiachin, the previous king, also known as Jeconiah or Coniah, was taken into captivity. Now, aside from being the very last king of Judah before the nation was taken captive by Babylon, Zedekiah only reigned for 11 years. So we're very, very near to the end and the destruction of the kingdom of Judah when Ezekiel begins to prophesy. One of the nice things about the book of Ezekiel, especially when it's compared to the prophecy of Jeremiah, is that it's more or less chronological. And therefore it's, it's much, much easier to follow than a prophet like Jeremiah. And if we were to break the book of Ezekiel down into chunks, it has roughly four parts or four sections as you can see on the screen. The first 24 chapters deal predominantly with the sin of the nation of Judah and the judgments of God that will come about as a result of that sin. Chapters 25 through 33 deal with the punishments of God on the nations, and those punishments largely happen because of the treatment of the nation of Israel by those nations. Chapters 34 through 39 deal with Israel being restored to their land, coming out of Babylon, and the final nine chapters deal with the future temple and future worship. One of the things that makes Ezekiel an interesting prophet to Judah is the fact that he's actually living in Babylon. You see, he was taken away captive in the third wave of captivity from Judah, and he begins to prophesy at 30 years of age. Ezekiel was part of a group known as the Good Figs, and that term arises from Jeremiah's prophecy. In fact, Jeremiah 24 that we have on the screen. God gives this vision to Jeremiah in chapter 24. We read, The Lord showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord. After that Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the carpenters and smiths, from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like unto the first figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land. I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up, and I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return unto me with their whole heart. And as the evil figs which cannot be eaten, they are so evil. And I will deliver them to be removed into all kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse, in all places, whither shall I drive them? The book of Ezekiel opens in chapter 1, to the reference of Jehoiachin or Jeconiah and his captivity, implying that Ezekiel was part of that captivity. And he was this part of this group of approximately 10,000 captives who were brought away with this king. Now notice in the prophecy of Jeremiah that the good figs are actually under God's divine care. And for that very purpose, God brings these captives into the land of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Now, conversely, there's a group of Jews that are described as naughty figs or evil figs because they turned their back on God and they were going to be destroyed and be scattered throughout the earth because of their wickedness. And it's this group predominantly that Ezekiel is seeking to warn about the impending judgments of God. So what was the message of Ezekiel and, and what made it so challenging for him to prophesy like this? Well, as we've mentioned in our webinars before, the nation of Israel was God's chosen people. They were quite proud of this fact and they were quite proud of their history coming from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob who were called out by God to be a special people and were given special promises by God. And then under Moses, they were given the law and under Joshua, they conquered the promised land. Finally, under King Solomon, a marvelous temple was erected in Jerusalem and it was a source of delight and pride for the Jews. So this magnificent city, this magnificent temple, and all the blessings they received were from God. But there was a problem. You see, in return for all of God's divine protection and care, God wanted the nation to worship him and him alone. The trouble was, based on their history, it seemed like Israel wanted to worship virtually every other false god under the sun. Sure, they continued to follow the law of Moses. They offered sacrifices, they cleansed themselves, they kept the holy days and they worshipped in the temple. But then they would turn around and they would worship the gods of the Amorites, the Philistines, the Hittites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, and on and on. You see, it's actually one of the rather unique things about the nation of Israel. Most nations had their own gods. And as a civilization, they stuck to worshipping their gods. But not Israel. So time and time again, God warned the nation. He sent prophets. He gave them signs. He oppressed Israel with various enemies, all in an attempt to turn Israel back to worshiping him and destroying the idols and the false gods. But now in the time of Ezekiel, God was going to make it clear through his prophet there were no more second chances. There would be no more relief from their enemies. This time their sin had gone too far and Judah and Jerusalem were going to be destroyed. Now, aside from a very controversial message, one of the difficulties that Ezekiel faced is spoken of very early in his prophecy in chapter 3. You see, God required Ezekiel to be a watchman. He says in Ezekiel 3, verses 17 and 18, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman into the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth, and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. You see, in ancient times, the watchmen over a city had a very important job. They were the guard who would be positioned in a tower or a fort, and they would keep watch for invaders or enemy armies. And when the watchmen saw danger, they were to sound the alarm to warn the people in the city to prepare for battle so that the people of the city wouldn't be caught unaware. If for whatever reason, the watchman failed to notify the people of the impending danger, well then that watchman would be held accountable for all who died on their watch. And this would often lead to the death of the watchman if they were lucky enough to survive the impending attack. And so in the time of Ezekiel, while the nation of Israel was in danger, Not only were they being invaded by the Babylonians, but they were filled with such wickedness and apostasy that God was going to destroy them if they didn't change. And God was going to use his prophet Ezekiel to warn the people to prepare and to change. But if Ezekiel didn't warn them, well, God would hold him personally responsible. As a prophet, one of the main reasons Ezekiel is so interesting to study is the way in which he was told to proclaim the word of God. Like many other prophets, Ezekiel received visions, but he was often asked to act out his visions or his prophecies that were given by God. As we said at the beginning of our session, that he was a man of sign. Now that might sound like a fun evening of charades, but it was anything but. Here is an example of some of the prophecies that he had to act out. We're told at the end of Ezekiel chapter 3 that he was going to be made mute by God, so that the only time he was allowed to speak was when God would let him speak. Now that would obviously add an incredible amount of weight to the words that he would speak, as the nation would know that certainly these were God's words. But after he's told that he would be made mute, Ezekiel is told that he should be bound with rope, like chains or handcuffs, leaving only one arm free so that he can draw... And act and cook things required for the prophecies that are revealed in chapters four and five. Now, just as an example, he was told to create a clay tile with a hand-drawn picture of Jerusalem on it. And he was to lay that in the ground. And then he was to create a little army and little weapons of siege and to lay siege against this tile that represented Jerusalem. And then he was told to lie on his side for 390 days facing this tile. And then he would flip to his other side for another 40 days. 430 days he would lay in front of his house facing this tile. Now Ezekiel is also told to cut off his hair. He's told to weigh it, and then he's told to put one-third of his hair in the little model city of Jerusalem that was besieged and burn it. Another third of his hair would be cut into pieces and massacred outside of this little model city, and the final third would be scattered into the wind. Now, the implications of this enacted parable are probably obvious to us. This was the judgment and the method of judgment that was coming upon the wicked people of Jerusalem at the hand of God through the Babylonians. One of the final signs of judgment that was given to Judah through Ezekiel is in chapter 24, God says that on the very same day that the king of Babylon would begin the final siege of Jerusalem with his intention to destroy the city, God says to Ezekiel, take a pot or a cauldron and set it full of water. And I want you to take the parts of an animal, it perhaps was a cow or a sheep, and put those parts inside the pot and then take the bones of that animal and use them like wood and create a fire underneath this pot. And You're going to boil what's in it. Then the parts that are in the pot are to be taken out and the remnants that are left in the pot are to be spiced to make like a thick broth. And then it was to be burnt until everything in that pot was consumed. And all that was left was a bit of scum in the bottom of the pot. Even the bones that were used as wood for the fire would be consumed. And after all that was left was this scum, the pot would be placed on the coals so that this residue in the bottom of the pot would be burnt and utterly consumed. You see, this was a sign to the nation of what was going to happen to those in Jerusalem. The fire represented the Babylonians who were coming against the city or the cauldron of Jerusalem. And parts or people of that city would be taken out of this cauldron, out of the city and into captivity. And then God would destroy, he would consume everything left in that cauldron using the fire of the Babylonians. And this process would completely purge the sin or the scum out of the city. This meant for those who were left alive, like those who were in captivity with Ezekiel, that the prized jewel of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, would be destroyed and taken away from them. This was a tragedy for the nation. Now, the wonderful thing about this book is that it's not all doom and gloom. While the first 24 chapters focus on the destruction of Judah for its idolatry and wickedness, and the next section, chapters 25 through 33, deal with the punishments on the nation for their cruelty to God's people, well, the book actually ends with two wonderful future visions. The third section of this book, from chapters 34 to 39, focuses on the return of Israel out of Babylon into the land that was promised to them. Now, this would happen approximately 70 years into the future. It's the time period of Ezra and Nehemiah, who, under the reigns of the Medes and the Persians, and they were the the nations that conquered Babylon, these exiles were allowed to go back to Jerusalem and build the temple, and then return again and build the walls and finally settle in their city. Now, this jumps a bit forward into the record, but God's methods, his punishments of destruction of the city of Jerusalem and Judah, would work. You see, once the people returned to the land as the exiles, well, never again did they struggle with idolatry as they once had. God had finally rid them of that particular sin, and he had spared a faithful remnant of his people to rebuild the nation. And here's where things get really interesting for you and I. You see, the third section of Ezekiel, in a very literal sense, deals with Israel returning from Babylon under Ezra and Nehemiah. But what's remarkable is that it actually lays a type or a pattern for the return of Israel that we saw back in 1948. Some of us who are watching this might have even been alive to witness that. When under the Balfour Declaration, the Jews were allowed to return to the land of Israel and establish a nation again. And then we come to chapters 40 through 48, which feature a section known as Ezekiel's temple. Now this is a wonderful, a very vivid and a very detailed account of a temple that it's never existed, at least not yet. Because in this vision, Ezekiel is shown what the temple and what worship will look like in this temple in the kingdom age here on earth. You see, this temple is going to be constructed after the return of Christ. And it's going to be built in Jerusalem, in the land of Israel, and all nations will come to Jerusalem to worship the one true God, the God of Israel, in this very temple. And when you think about it, thats well, that's a remarkable way to end this book, isn't it? Because it, it begins with visions and warnings of destruction of the temple, Solomon's temple that existed in Jerusalem, because that temple was filled with sin and idolatry. But the book ends with a different temple, a wonderful temple that's filled with true, pure worship and all the faithful remnant will come and they will worship at this temple. So can you imagine being one of the, the people who were taken into captivity at the time of Ezekiel, longing to return to Judah and to Jerusalem, to a time when you could worship at the temple? You long to be there, and these visions of a future temple, when Christ returns, well, they would give them hope. It would give them something to look forward to. And that's the wonderful thing for us, because This vision can be a source of hope for us too, as we wait for the return of Christ and for this temple to be constructed. With that very brief overview, I'll now pass things over to Mr. Dunloff to take us through his section in my father's house are many mansions.
1: Well, thank you, Joel. Uh... Interesting how you end off, it's a section I will deal with as well for a few minutes. But, nice to be with you everybody again. It's been, I guess, two months since I last helped out with the uh, webinar, and I'm glad to help out again this evening. Our subject this evening, as we mentioned before, is, "...in my Father's house are many mansions." It's a phrase found in the Gospel of John, uh, Chapter 14 and the first four verses. But first, we'd like to lay some preliminary uh, comments, some points uh, to you. Um, i just like to read from the Psalms, uh, Psalm 115. Let's think of God's purpose with creation. Psalm 115, verses uh, 15 and 16. says, You are blessed of the Lord, which made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth as he given to the children of men. Important to have this in mind, the earth has He given to the children of men. The heaven belongs to God as far as His dwelling place. And several times during the webinars, it's been referred to in Numbers chapter 14, verse 21, that God's purpose overall is to fill the earth with His glory. Again, the earth is important in God's creation with mankind involved. And in past weeks, I've just got the schedule here with me, we've looked at covenants in Eden on week 44, covenants with Abraham on week 45, a covenant with David on week 46. There's been a number of sections on prophecy dealing with the nation of Israel and our nations on this earth. Next week, uh, we will deal with the Lord's Prayer, Thy Kingdom Come. All these subjects, have to do with the earth that God has given to mankind. And that's important as we start our study this evening. In this slide before you are the verses that we find in John chapter 14, in the first four verses. I'll read them for you. you have them on the screen. I'm going to look at my Bible. The prints a little bigger for me. Jesus is showing his compassion and kindness to his disciples. He was concerned about their feelings as he left them. They would feel like orphans or homeless, or as in the homeless, but uh, comfortless, so to speak. So John 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, but you also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Whither I go ye you know, and the way ye you know. So, what do we make of this? In my Father's house are many mansions. Jesus was going to leave his disciples behind. He wanted to provide them with some comfort, since they could not go with him. And it says that in the previous chapter, chapter 13, verse 36. Peter's talking to him, and he's concerned about it. Jesus says to Peter, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now. Okay? But thou shalt follow me afterwards. And, and the last phrase was to do with the type of death that Jesus would suffer and as well, Peter would well as well meet his, his demise. But the reference was very important. Whither I go, thou, thou canst not follow me now. They would not go where he was going. Jesus was going to heaven to be with his father. But he wanted to leave them some comfort. The Holy Spirit is one of them, called the Comforter, but also this promise that we have here this evening in this section in John chapter 14. So let us go to the second slide, slide, please. It's important that uh, we read carefully, as it has there. Um, Where is the Father's house? Well, they've always been on the earth, and that's important tonight. What did it mean by many mansions? Well, some would say, and in certain groups, that the many mansions are understood to be places or dwelling places in Heaven where the righteous would go when they die. Is that what we read here? We'll talk about that more in the next slide. The next question, where was Jesus going? Well, we know He was going to Heaven, but that's where He went, and that's where He is, with, he is, is now with His Heavenly Father. What place was Jesus going to prepare? Well, he's making preparations for the kingdom. When will Jesus come again? Well, we hope very soon. And the only only one who really knows that is his father. So we say very soon. Where is Jesus going to be when he comes? Well, I believe last week, uh, Mr. Dan Robinson dealt with this clearly in this topic. What Jesus was going to do when he returns. There's the resurrection of the dead the judgment of the living and the dead when they're raised, the total dominion of the whole world, with the capital city being Jerusalem, and the start of a thousand years of reign that will end up in peace afterwards. We call the millennial rule, the millennial reign. But the last question is quite important. Does the word heaven appear in these verses at all? No, it doesn't. That's an assumption. It's not there, and that's not the intent of what Jesus has promised his disciples. The word heaven is just not there. Let's go to the next slide, please. Let's deal with this aspect of the house. Now, the house in in the Bible has different meanings depending on the context. In this particular case, it means a residence or an abode, like a family home, a very large family home. But then we have the word mansion. That gets kind of confusing. We think of a mansion bigger than a home. Mansion is usually understood to be quite big. However, if we check the definition of the meaning of this word mansion, it is more like a place to stay in the house or in the home, like a room. Or as other translations have it, in my father's house, there are many rooms, many rooms. This, this this makes sense, doesn't it? In my Father's house, there are many rooms. And we'll see why it makes sense, because we see it in other scriptures as we go along here. Let's go to the next slide, if we could, please. To help us understand this house and room matter, the house with many rooms, um, the Bible itself helps us. Let's consider this slide. Where are all of God's houses? Where have they been in the past, and where will they be in the future? on the earth. The tabernacle in the time of Moses. just like to read this for you. It's in Exodus. The verse is there on the screen, on the slide. It's Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9. Remember, uh, with your knowledge of of the Scriptures, where God asked Moses to do things. In this case, it was to make what was called a tabernacle. Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. Let them make me a tabernacle that I may dwell among them. According to all that I showed thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it." A tabernacle. It was like a tent-like structure. There was wood involved and material, lots of interesting things involved in the making of the tabernacle. It was a residence or a dwelling place for God, really. But after they were all done, what happened? In Exodus chapter 40, Exodus chapter 40 states several times that Moses did as God commanded him. The end of verse 33, so Moses finished the work. What happened when he finished the work? It's like Numbers chapter 14. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God was there. He was pleased with what they had done. This tabernacle, this dwelling place for God, was filled with his glory. Numbers 14. Kind of a small example of Numbers 14. Solomon. After King David made the preparations, King Solomon built a temple. We look at the verse in 1 Kings chapter 7 and verse 51. So was ended all the work that King Solomon made for the house of the Lord. Okay, he ended, he finished. So what happened after that? Was God pleased or not? He certainly was. First Kings chapter 8 and verse 51. Sorry, verse, uh, verses eight, 10 and 11. First Kings chapter 8 and verse 10. It came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so the priest could not stand to minister before the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house. Another house that God was pleased with, filled with his glory. Solomon's temple. Numbers 14 again. a Partial fulfillment during that time period of what God wanted to do overall. Filled the earth with his glory. Later on in the time of Jesus, we turn to John chapter 2. He went into the temple. He actually did this twice according to the record in John. What he found there, he wasn't too happy with. A lot of merchandise, a lot of business. That's not what this temple was for. Even though Herod built it, it was a replacement temple. Jesus still considered it to be a place of worship. John chapter 2, verse 16. After he threw everybody out, what did he do? And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Get them out of here. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Merchandise. It wasn't supposed to be a house of business like a mart, like a Kmart or a Walmart. That wasn't the purpose of this place at all. Although God's glory couldn't dwell there due to the false worship. However, Jesus was really thinking of the following Old Testament example that we have in Isaiah. You see the references there? Isaiah chapter 2 is one reference. It refers to a future house of glory on the earth. A house of prayer, but i like to go to Isaiah chapter 56 where the prophet Isaiah talks about this house and the purpose of this house. It was a place where people were going to go. Many people go there. Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain, that's talked about in Isaiah chapter 2, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be acceptable upon my altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. All these houses, all these structures, where are they? They're on the earth. A future house of prayer for all people. And this brings us right to pretty well the last reference that that Joel had. Let's go over to Ezekiel chapter 43. Interesting how this comes together. Ezekiel chapter 43 and verse 5. Let's start in verse 4. Ezekiel 43 and verse 4. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east, that the sun's rising toward the east. So the Spirit of the Lord took me and brought me into the inner court. And behold, what was there? (laughs) The glory of the Lord filled the house. That's what's going to happen in the future. So whether in the past or in the future, God plans on heaven's glory where He wants it to be, in the future, in the house, and eventually throughout the whole world. Interesting how these things connect together, isn't it? Well, I got a question for you, and I'm not looking for an answer right now, but think about it. Can we think of anywhere, or at any time, In the history of the Bible, where many creatures were saved in a large structure on this planet. Again, can we think of an example? A period of time in the history of the Bible, where many creatures, I use the word creatures for for, for a purpose, were saved in a large structure on this planet. Let's go to the next slide there, please. There it is. Noah's Ark. Now let me think, what's that got to do with it? It's got a lot to do with it. A lot to do with it. Noah's Ark. Let me read in in Genesis chapter 6 what Noah's Ark was like. This isn't any fairy tale. This is a real deal. This did happen. Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. God telling Noah, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark. You may have in your margin the word nest, places for animals. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. There's a lot of meaning behind that. A place for salvation, to be, be, keep people from, from drowning. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. That's about 450 feet, about a one, one and a half football fields long. The breadth of, of 50 cubits, 75 feet wide. And the height of it, 30 cubits, about 45 feet of height. There's going to be a window. There's going to be a door in verse 16. There's going to be three stories in verse 16. That's what the drawing shows on the screen. What a place. A big house of salvation with many rooms. Many rooms. This is real. Eight people were taken to. They weren't taken to heaven, were they? No, they were not taken to heaven. These people were saved on the earth. And what happened to the rest? Well, you know the story. Only eight people were saved in this large structure, with many rooms. That's where we want to be when Christ comes back. We want to be in the house of prayer on this earth. Well, some people, let's go to the next slide, please. Some people would say, that Jesus is not talking about a natural, or a real house, but that He's actually talking about a spiritual house. Well, let's see if the Bible does talk about a spiritual house. Well, it does, and for a reason. You see the reference there in Ephesians chapter 2? It has many words that come out of the Old Testament. You can't have symbolic without having real. A household of God, a holy temple, a habitation of God, like the tabernacle. These verses are based on the natural, real circumstances of the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul is using Old Testament language, Old Testament terms. It is referring to the members of the church in Ephesus in the first century. It was a city on the earth. They were people that he wanted to be in the future situation. It's not on your screen, but Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, that who is the head of this body of believers? Christ is the head. Christ is the head of the body of the believers. You see the other reference there, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 to 6. Again, indications of Old Testament terminology, lively stones. It takes stone to build a temple, a real temple. It takes lively stones to build a spiritual house. Who's the chief cornerstone of this house? Well, Jesus is, eh? Again, an example we have of the first century believers. They were in the first century on the earth. In other words, let's go to the last slide, please. In other words, there must be a natural circumstance, or a natural house, a real house, before there is a spiritual application. John 14, in this chapter, these four verses, Jesus is talking about a real house of prayer on the earth. where spiritually minded people throughout the centuries will live on the earth in this house and in the environs of this house. That's where they eventually will be. The question before us, though, is, are we prepared for Jesus to return? He said he was coming back. That's where I want to be. (laughs) No sense being in heaven if he's going to be here. As we don't go to heaven when we die, we end up in the grave waiting for the resurrection day. Are we prepared for Jesus to return? Let's read these verses to Luke chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. Luke chapter 19, many parables taught by Jesus about the kingdom. Luke 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, what Jesus was saying, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, a very important city for God, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He wanted to change their thinking. He said, therefore, a certain man, a certain nobleman, Jesus, went into a far country, went to heaven to his father, to receive to himself a kingdom, and to return. That's really what he's saying in John 14, the first few verses. Let's go over now to Mark chapter 13. This gets pretty personal for us all. Mark chapter 13, verse 33. Jesus is saying to us, Take ye heed, therefore, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house, and there are lots of thoughts there, who left his house, the churches, the believers, his body, he left those things behind, those things that represent his body in the earth, and gave authority to his servants, he's talking to us, and do every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch, watch ye therefore, we don't know when he's going to come back, we do not know, we don't all, we don't want to be caught in surprise, do we? We want to be prepared. So the last verse, and what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. So we must be ready, for when Christ returns, when He sets up His kingdom, that we can join the, the faithful ones of all time to be with Him there. Okay, Joel, I'll, or Dan, I'll turn it back to you now, Okay.
2: Yeah, thank you so much, Don and, and Joel, for your presentations this evening. And we're so glad that everyone was able to join with us this evening. We remind you to stick around for a few minutes after and we'll uh, answer any questions that you might have and have a little discussion about uh, tonight's webinar. And we invite you back, of course, next week as we're going to look at a couple more topics. We're going to, in our Finding Our Way section, look at the Prophet Daniel and try to give you a quick a rundown of what the book of Daniel is about and in our key Bible themes we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer Explained. So we hope that you can come back and join with us next week and we remind you this is a bit of a milestone this week. This was our 52nd episode of the Bible Basics webinar. We've been going just over a year and you can catch all of our episodes if you want to go to our YouTube channel. You'll find all the episodes up there so that you can review them. And if you have any questions, you can send them to us via email. If you'd like to be notified of all our future events, just uh, check out our Instagram page as well. So we, we look forward
1: to talking about the scriptures with you.